Well, good morning, everyone. If you would turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. Chapter 2, we're going to be in verses 11 through 14 this morning. Hope that you've all had a blessed week and enjoying this time together in worship. Ephesians 2, 11 through 14 is a strong text, especially the breakdown of hostility, which is our subject today. We begin in verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Let us pray together. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you this morning that you are the one who can break these chains, Lord, these chains of sin and death, hurt and pain, evil, Lord that have wrapped us so tightly, Lord, you are the one who can break them. You are the one who can break them with your blood, Lord. Painted on the doorpost above our hearts at the moment of salvation, Lord, only you can do this. Only you can break the hostility that has gripped us in the death grip. Lord, so why would we go to other places, other people, other theologies, other religions, other doctrines? Why would we run from that which can save us from the death? we seek to avoid. Lord, the issue is is that we in our flesh are so often lifting ourselves up to replace God most high with self-worship, Lord, vanity that leads to the judgment and the judgment of God forever. Lord, help us today. Let us trust only in this broken hostility that comes from having peace in Christ. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Look at verse 11. He's talking to Gentiles now, people on the rim of the Mediterranean that he's planted the church of Ephesus in. And he's saying, you, by nature, are not Jews. You were not part of the family or the covenant family of God. And now you were once outside. You were uncircumcised and looked down on, judged by those who were circumcised. Having completed this discussion of believers as God's workmanship in verse 10, Paul begins this section to alert the Ephesians of they once had no relationship with God. He reminds them that before their conversions, they were Gentiles by birth. Jews being circumcised in the body disparaged all non-Jews by calling them uncircumcised. A great social and spiritual boundary existed between the Jews and the Gentiles. You and I today are primarily Gentiles. Now the world is spread out so far, and with airplanes we can all get around so easily, that over the past couple hundred years, there's a lot of us who have Jewish blood in our DNA. You can do a DNA test, and I've seen people do this, where they ended up being Azerbaijani Jews, even though they lived in this country their whole life, and their grandparents' whole life, but they still showed up in the DNA test. Does that then make us part of the covenant people of God? That's somewhere buried in my genetic code? I have an ancestor who is Jewish, therefore I don't have to trust in Jesus Christ. I can enter into the kingdom trusting in my blood. 
Look at verse 12. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, having no hope and without God in the world. These Gentiles existed in this way, apart from Israel, and without Christ, this is how we exist. Alienated from God, a stranger in God's kingdom, an illegal alien in the church, apart from the blood of Christ, you and I do not belong. And we should be kicked out. There's a lot of people I've heard through over the years who know who shouldn't be at church and who ought to be kicked out of church. It's never them, surprisingly. But they do know who it is. And I'm telling you today that God is saying without Christ, you are the one who deserves to be kicked out. You are the one who doesn't belong. Without the precious saving blood of Jesus Christ, you ought to get out. Oh, that sounds so harsh. Harsh? God is directing you to salvation. He's giving you the truth of what you need to be saved. Harsh. God is being merciful here. God is being loving and kind in this text. The same way a parent spanks a child to keep their attitude from becoming so poor that they abandon the right morals of society. God is in fact now spanking us, disciplining us, bringing us to repentance so that we will not abandon His worship. You and I have no hope. And we do not have God apart from Jesus Christ. What did Jesus say? I am the way. And not just the way, but the truth. And not just the truth, but the life. The eternal life you need, you can only find in Christ. The Gentile scholars have identified five major areas that they were different than the Jews. First, they were separate from Christ, not only personally, but in that they had no national hope of Messiah. Second, they were excluded from citizenship in Israel. They do not belong to the theocratic state of Israel. I've heard so many people talk about this nation. Oh, we just want this nation to come back to God. If they would just come back to God, everything would be fixed. And I'm telling you, that's wrong. Nations can't repent. Only people can. The people need to repent. The people need to come back to God. Israel was a theocratic society. That's not a celebration of some guy named Theo. That means that they were a society that was religiously based. And they continuously turned and rejected God at every moment and every possibility they could. They had it set up right. Their political system was based entirely around the Old Testament. They didn't have a constitution. They had the Ten Commandments. And it didn't help anyone. They continuously abandon him. Read the book of Judges. Every other chapter starts with, and then the people of Israel sinned. They never learn. And neither do we. It's so easy to look in the Bible and go, those Israelites, what fools. I wouldn't have wanted meat from the meat pot. I would have been happy with manna. If you've ever complained about something in church, it, it disproves that sentence. I would have been happy with Moses' leadership. I never would have griped once. We're no different than they. In fact, we have the benefit of the entire collected scripture canon of God's word and modern technology to look it up anytime we want. We are no better than they who scratched it out of the dirt to serve God. Third, they were foreigners to the covenants of the promise. They were deprived 
direct participation in God's covenant and thus had no hope of future glory. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if that was the message of the New Testament? That it really only applied to the people that heard Jesus walk and talk on the earth and anybody else is out of luck? What hope would we have? None existing for you and I. But it's not that way. It is not so. God has put a hope for you and I. And it's the very hope we treat and take for granted. It's the very hope that we have, but yet we use it so sparingly. God gets reserved to Sunday at 11 and Wednesday at 6.30. It's the only time we worship, the only time we serve. Why would these things be? Could it be that we actually struggle with our flesh far more than we want to admit or even realize? Could it be that, in fact, our flesh is such an enemy, we focus so often on some other political group or some other religion, when the truth is, I have met the enemy and it is me? I look into the mirror and I see the face of the guy ruining my life. I saw him again this morning. Rotten scoundrel. It's me. I'm the enemy. I am the one who doesn't do God's work. And I know this is true because Paul in Romans 7 said the famous words, I don't do the things I should do or want to do. I do the things I shouldn't do. I do the things I don't want to do. Who will deliver me from this body of death? There's such theologies today. Raising up the body of death as something worthy or even to be praised Heretic preachers who say things like, I read in the Bible, God says I am, and I say I am too. Foolishness. God says I am, and the proper response to that is, yes, he is. Yes, he is. There's only two true religions in this world. There's the true worship of Yahweh, and there's the worship of self. And you can dress up self however you want. But it's the only other God that we worship. It works it out in many forms, money, false idols of all various kinds. When Saturday football is more enticing and engaging than Sunday church. When Friday night movie is more fun than Bible study. When gossip is more interesting than prayer request. Fourth, the Gentiles were without Unlike Israel, they had no expectation of a personal Messiah and a messianic age. Fifth, they were without God. The Gentiles are in a desperate situation. They have no meaning, no hope, no purpose, no direction in life. This is you and I. We were cut off from God, from heaven, from joy, and from peace. We were without hope. We are the one who walk this life apart from God. All of our efforts, our work, our energies, they are wasted. They are wasted, and in eternity, we will continue to remain apart from God. Go to Isaiah chapter 45. Isaiah chapter 45, God is being so gentle here. Speaking to the people. His covenant people. And it supplies to us so truly. Isaiah 45, verse 19.
Scripture says, I do not speak in secret. In a land of darkness, I do not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. This is so important for us to learn. God is not trying to trick you. He is not pulling a fast one. He has not said, go out there and find me in the material world. That's seeking him in vain. He says, I haven't done that. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Here's the problem with our modern Christianity. We see things that are wrong and incorrect, and we try to fix them with a standard that we have developed culturally in our church and not the standard that God has in his word. And if you say, not, not I, I don't do that, well then congratulations, you perfect one. Please instruct the rest of us. Our flesh is in existence, means we cannot seek God rightly. No one can. No one can speak the right truth. No one can truly declare what is right but one, and that one left glory to come down to flesh. And not only to come down, but to die. Verse 20, assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols. It's so important, that verbiage there, wooden idols. These idols aren't even really made of stone or anything concrete that will last. They're wood, they'll dry rot, they'll burn. And they'll burn in God's judgment. How many of us carry around still the wooden idol? Look at the end of the verse. And keep on praying to a God that cannot save. It's so easy to fall into the trap of, I go to the right church, and I have the right theology, and I have the right doctrines, and everybody else has got it wrong, but I. Be careful that your theology is not truly a wooden idol you use as a crutch. Be careful that your prayers are not actually going to a God that cannot save a cultural made-up God that you learned about in some poor Sunday school, but not the truth of God's Word being expounded. There is only one place that we can truly know is right. There is only one God who is not a wooden idol. There is only one God that can save, and that is the true God, Yahweh. The three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. This is the only truth and the only one that can save. Give up the wooden idols. Be so careful, church. It's so easy to look at the other denominations and the other religions. It's so easy to pick on the Catholics for their merry worship. When you and I will fall into the worship of Lottie Moon just as easily. Yeah, I know I'm, I'm hitting nerves with that one. We look at the Catholics with their venerated saints and their statues of famous popes. And we say, what fools! But yet we'll turn around and appeal to the Billy Grahams more than we will the words of Christ. I even heard a person say that Jesus was a pretty good evangelist, Paul was better, and Billy Graham was the best. 
nothing against Billy Graham. I actually don't know a lot about him. I, that was before my time. Sorry, some of you older guys. <laughs> not really my time period. <laughs> we have to be so careful that we do not fall into the wooden idol of denominational and theological arrogance. That because we have it right, we don't have to worry. And not only am I telling you that's wrong, but I'm telling you that your sinful flesh is enough of a reason for you to worry. Because what did Jesus say? What did God tell Cain? Sin is crouching at the door, ready to ensnare you. What did, what did the author of Hebrews say? We have to keep running and cast off the shackles and run with endurance. The world, if it truly is going to hell in more ways than one, then you and I cannot trust in a cultural savior to save. We cannot trust in the wooden idols of Baptist to help. We can only trust in one place. Now, I've been rough with you. Verse 13, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. What a sorry state we find ourselves in. What shall we do? Verse 13, but now, Paul says, we used to be that way. We were struggling with that. But now in Christ Jesus, the only Savior, we who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We who did not deserve, we who could not pay, we who could not earn have been brought in without any merit of our own to offer. It's the job interview where we said, not only can I not do this job, I, I don't even want to do this job. And the interview says, that's all right, I love you. And I'm bringing you in anyway. We were far off. We were the ones out in darkness. But now we have been brought near. We come near to God by means of Christ's sacrificial death. Sin separates people from God, and only Christ's atonement can remove that sin barrier. It's the entire message of the Old and New Testament put together. We used to sacrifice lambs and shed physical blood, but now our great high priest shed his own spiritual blood. Go to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. The scripture says, They sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Now this is after the lamb that has been slain has come into the throne room to open the scroll. That should also affect your eschatology, but that's a different sermon. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, every language, every people, and every nation. And that's so important, because we can never say, yeah, those people over there, they're not going to be saved. They're not worthy. That's what the Jews said about us. That's what the Jews thought about the Samaritans. That's what they thought about the Ephesians. And if we become like them, we will simply be another form of messianic Judaism 
excluding those we deem uncircumcised. Verse 10, And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. By the blood of Jesus you have been brought near. Only His perfect blood. The only man who ever walked the earth with special blood is the only one who could atone for our sinful debt. Out of every people group in the world, Christ is saving and bringing them to the Father for worship and glory. I have heard the personal testimonies of some of the most wicked living imaginable. And then that person came to repentance and belief in Jesus. The great King David not only committed adultery, not only impregnated another man's wife, but then murdered the man to cover his shame. And he found repentance and belief in the eyes of God. How can we ever declare, you won't get in, you're not worthy? In fact, that's backwards, we have that wrong and we need to change. The church's message should not be who is not worthy, who is excluded, who is not getting in. We have one message. It's been given in the New Testament. It's commanded for eternal repeat. Jesus Christ is the worthy one. Jesus Christ is the only one who can save. It doesn't matter your background because he is the only one who can save no matter what. You can be a murderer, a liar, or you even stubbed a neighbor's toe. A slight of inconvenience. It doesn't matter. He's the only Savior who can. I used to feel bad at times because my testimony was not filled with more grievous sin and didn't sound as good as others. I used to feel bad about that in my younger days. Then I realized reading scripture that my very fleshly existence was an affront to God's holiness. And it mattered not that I had never been drunk on a Friday night. It mattered that I had sinned against God. Out of every group of people in the world, Christ is saving and bringing them to the Father but not so that you and I can enjoy a special place called heaven. He's bringing us there for worship and glory. Look at verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. There was a guy named Brother Lawrence who was a monk in a monastery who did not have the right education or background for the rest of the monks. And so instead of giving him education, they made him a dishwasher where he spent the rest of his life washing dishes in the monastery. He is now famous the world over theologically for his book, The Practice of the Presence of God. It is said that young theological students would come and sit next to the sink to listen to him pray, listen to him talk about God. He said this on this topic, the most holy and important practice in all spiritual life is the presence of God. That is every moment to take great pleasure that God is with you. 
And how can God be with me? Only by verse 14, by having my wall of hostility broken down. Christ himself is the peace between Jewish and Gentiles. Peace is mentioned four times in these verses. Various interpretations have been given regarding this dividing wall, which is mentioned only here in the New Testament. You see why this is so important? This is only mentioned once. Some have thought it refers to the wall in Jerusalem. The temple uh, walls that separated the court of the Gentiles from the court of the Jews. But this view is probably invalid because Paul makes no reference to the temple. And this wall was still standing when Paul wrote this epistle. Some think it referred to the curtain in the Jerusalem temple between the holy place and the holy of holies. The curtain that was split from top to bottom when Jesus was crucified. But that was a curtain, not a wall. Others have suggested it meant fence around the Torah mentioned by a few rabbis, but this probably referred to protection of the law more than, more than hostility. Harold Homner in his commentary says, The structure of the Greek words suggests the dividing wall describes not a physical barrier, but the spiritual enmity between Jews and Gentiles which separated them. Since Christ has destroyed this enmity, Jewish and Gentile believers should have no hostility. That is the physical background of the text. Now we must do, as all good preaching should do, bring it forward to our 21st century day. What does it mean for you and I? The hostility between we and God's judgment has been and will be broken by the Lord Jesus Christ. He broke our sins so that we could come near and worship God. The dividing wall of hostility was your unrepentance and your unbelief. And only by doing these things in the name of Jesus, only by repenting and believing in Christ, can you breach that wall that He has broken for you. Go to John chapter 10, verse 16. It's so important, church, that we do not repeat the mistakes of the past, that we do not set ourselves up as some kind of new spiritual Israel, excluding and determining like Pharisees those whom God is bringing into his kingdom. John 10, 16, Jesus says, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. If you are a Gentile today like I am, I thank God for this verse. I have other sheep. And they're all like, what? What are you talking about, Jesus? You have 12 other disciples on the side? Jesus has other sheep. They're not of this fold. I must bring them also. I love this language. I must bring them also. Why? Because if you read the entire chapter of John, they were given to Jesus by the Father. And they will listen to my voice. There's the standard. How do you know if you're in the fold of Christ, you listen to the voice of Christ? And where is the voice of Christ? Is it in my excellent thoughts and opinions about things? Is it in my education? Is it in my experience? Is it in the fact that I'm right and the mother suckers are wrong? Where is the voice of Christ? 
I'll make it non-rhetorical. Where is the voice of Christ? The Bible! And specifically where? John chapter 10. They will listen to my voice. The word of God that has been preserved and given is the only voice to trust. Look at the end of the verse. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Which means that if a church or a group or an individual is truly repenting and believing in Jesus Christ, they now have the freedom to worship Christ in the New Testament liberty he has given them. Which means our order of service, our beautiful decorations, our building does not make us a Christian church. What makes us a Christian church? What separates us from a moose lodge and a beautiful country club? We listen, obey, and worship the voice of Christ. This is what separates. This is what we listen to. This is the standard. Frederick uh, William Faber said this in his poem. Souls of men will you scatter like a crowd of frightened sheep? Foolish hearts, why will ye wander? From a love so true and deep. There is but one flock and one church, led by one shepherd. We must not and cannot exclude for personal or cultural reasons those whom Christ has shed his blood to bring in. There is but one shepherd, one leader, Christ. Not the pastor not the elders, not the deacons, not the leaders and teachers. There is only Jesus who is able and worthy and holy enough to shepherd the flock of God's people. The reference to pastors as shepherds is actually under shepherd. We listen to the voice of the shepherd definitively, and then we bring that voice to the sheep. That's it. That's the job. Jesus says blank. That's the position. So it's so important for we, more than anybody else, not to include our thoughts and opinions. Because if I just did what I thought we should do, it would all look different. And if we do what you think we should do, it would look some other way different. And who's right? Neither of us. Only Christ. And how does that get worked out in the church? He puts in the collective spirit that we all share the direction he wants a particular church to go. Which is why a group of people can all decide to embrace disaster relief and get to work and supporting that work all together. That's why we can put on a fall festival. That's why we can put on VBS. We can do these things collectively. We would never get them done on our own because we would never agree. But somehow it happens. How does this magical event take place? Only in Christ. His Spirit brings unity. Gets us all on the same page and gives us the mission, the direction, the focus. Listen to the voice of Jesus. Listen to the true shepherd. Verse 14. Look at it again in Ephesians. Paul declares, For he himself is our peace 
one of my favorite things about the Apostle Paul was his rejection of his flesh and his embracing the Spirit. That is to say, Paul could have made himself the arbiter of the New Testament covenant. Paul could have set up a church that glorified him. Paul could have set up a new Judaism and a new temple. Ephesians even has a temple. He could have kicked everybody out and brought in his people and take over. But he doesn't. Paul had one mission. He listened to the voice of Christ. He made it about Christ at all times, and that's why he is an author of half of our New Testament. If we really want to be like Paul, if we want to imitate Paul, as he imitates Christ, as we so like to say, then let us listen to the Christ that Paul listened to. And it will bring us to this place. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace. You know, the longer I'm in ministry, the more I want peace. Not excitement, not not great movements and thousands of people. I want peace because peace is one of the best indicators that the presence of God is there. Who has made us both one, one church, one flock, and has broken down in his flesh what he died to do for you and I, the dividing wall of hostility. This dividing wall was between the Gentiles and Jews. And right now today, if you do not have Christ, it is between you and God. You are hostile in the sense that you reject God, and God will be hostile to you in the sense His judgment will be poured out. But you don't have to stay that way. You today can come to salvation by repenting of sin and believing in Jesus Christ. If you have not yet done so, I would so encourage you, for time is always near from the moment Jesus ascended to glory, the time that He will return is close. And in this breaking of hostility, there is now true peace from a true shepherd. Our shepherd has broken down the hostility between us and God with his own blood. He has made a way for me to worship out of what is unholy. I can now worship who is holy in the name of Jesus. True peace is only found in the Lord. Jesus Christ. Listen only to Him and see hostility in your life broken down and see peace reign. I've completed my notes and what I've studied, but I feel like the Lord wants me to say one more thing. Today, if there is hostility between you and another believer, I would encourage you to go and make that right. It doesn't mean you'll lose your salvation, but it can render you unhappy and ineffective in the church. So if you know there's something between you and somebody else, you need to go get it right. You need to go get it right. I personally can't sleep. I can't. My soul is awake and turning at night. But I thank God that I slept good last night. And I expect to again tonight. Because if I've wronged anybody right now, I do not know it because I did it out of ignorance or arrogance. And if told, I will say, hey, please forgive me. Because I'm doing my best to listen to the Lord Jesus Christ.
So I will pray for you. I don't know why the Lord is having me say this. I trust him. I will pray for you that you fix this hostility. And if not, I will pray that God will not let you sleep until you get it right. Anybody shows up at the church in the morning, bleary-eyed, wants to talk? I'll be around. I do have some grass to mow tomorrow, so probably call. <laughs> Bow your heads with me. Dear Lord Jesus, once again we thank you. And all God's true saints say, yes, Lord. You are the one. You are the shepherd. I only truly listen to you. And there is no human being on this earth I will follow unless I am helping them in their attempt to listen to your voice. Lord, make us all child servants. Take us all back to seven, eight, nine, ten years old when we're just learning how to do things around the house. Just starting to think about accomplishing a job. Lord, only little children enter the kingdom of God. So Lord, help us today to find true peace only in the shepherd whose name is Jesus. In his name we pray.